0: Daily news and analysis, we keep you informed and inspired.
1: This is World Today.
2: Hello and welcome to the panel discussion of World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Dihening Baijing. In the U.S., the United Auto Workers strike has been going on for almost three weeks, and it looks like the labor union is prepared for a longer fight. For the first time in the US history, the UAW is striking against all of the big three General Motors, Ford, and Stellanis at the same time. Anderson Economic Group, a Michigan based research company, estimates that the first two weeks of this particular movement alone has cost the American economy almost 4 billion US dollars. So, what has prompted these auto workers? put down their tools, and is the strike representing a reflection of a bigger social movement in the United States? These questions and much more in this edition of the program. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. So joining us now on the line is Paul Fabrizio, professor of political science with McMurray University. Thank you very much for joining us. It's good to be here. Also joining us on the line is Dr. Derek Katzum, Professor of History at the University of Texas of the Permian Basin. Welcome back, Professor Katzum.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: And finally, we have Aubrey Jewett, Associate Professor of Political Science with the University of Central Florida. Hello, welcome back.
0: Thanks, good to be here.
2: Okay, so uh, Professor Fabrizio, to start with you, a central talking point of the UAW, this labor union, is that the workers, the auto workers, uh, made a lot of sacrifices and concessions during the 2008-2009 financial crisis in order to help these uh, big three automakers survive. So now it is these companies' turn to increase workers' pay and benefits. Uh, in your observation, why has that become the front and center in today's strike?
3: Well, I, I think the reason for that, and there's a couple of reasons, obviously. But originally, the United Auto Workers was there to help workers make it to the middle class, and that pact really changed with the uh, Great recession in 2008 2009 when then the labor deal was really to get the workers just to help the company survive so there was a shift from helping the workers be middle class to instead just making sure the company would actually exist to make cars another day so the workers took huge concessions and now that the auto companies are back in profitability, the workers say, hey, it's our turn. We want to go back to what we were aimed for as a union, and that is to be part of the middle class. And the salaries that uh, the UAW were getting from the auto workers are not middle class salaries. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really the thrust of it. You have people who are underpaid and. Uh, they sacrificed, and now they believe it's the company's turn to sacrifice for them.
2: Mm-hmm. So, Professor Katzen, would you agree in this point that uh, this is partly, at least partially, due to this um, sentiment on the part of the UAW that, okay, we owe these um, auto workers a lot during the financial crisis, so now it's it's time for the compensation? Professor Katzen. Oh,
1: Absolutely. I mean I think there's a there's a sense of the the differential pay uh, over years, that have sort of been led to this this real differential among how many of the workers are, are making, particularly those hired in the last 10 or 15 years. And I think it's been really problematic for for a lot of the workers. And now they're asking for this conversation to be to be fixed uh, because of that ability to move into the middle class for the younger workers who now aren't that young, necessarily. They, it's been really difficult for them and to watch the pay gap between them and their colleagues when the idea of equal pay for equal work has always been a foundational principle.
2: Hmm. Okay. So, Professor Jewett, um, we understand actually one thing under fire during this uh, current strike is regarding the CEO pay. For example, the CEO of General Motors, this lady, uh, she reportedly makes about 362 times the median GM employee's salary. So, how would you look at this particular point of contention? And in particular, how would you explain the fact that actually the Detroit three CEOs, they actually are earning much more than some of their same level competitors? For example, I'm I'm talking about say the case of a Toyota. It is reported that the Toyota CEO earns only about one third of the pay package uh for the, the big three CEOs.
0: Well this has been a trend in American business, at least since the 1980s, where we have seen an increase in the disparity and the gap between CEO pay and the average worker pay. And it's not just an American phenomenon, but it certainly seems to be a big part of the American economic system over the last 40 years. And it didn't always used to be like that. But I think it was part of the 1980s Reagan revolution where the government and conservative economic policy began to uh, take hold. And we saw uh, a, a decrease in the uh, amount of progressivity in tax rates. And we saw less regulation of businesses. And, of course, we saw a weakening of unions as well over that time. So all that has led to the CEOs of the car companies, the major three, but also in many other businesses, you see these huge disparities in America. And I think that certainly has fed into worker frustration and is one of the reasons why the UAW is taking such a hard line on these negotiations.
2: Mm. So uh, based on what you have uh, elaborated, uh, Professor Aubrey Jewett, I guess that's Part of the reason why, if you take a look at some of these um, striking workers, striking auto workers, many of them have a pretty strong anti Reagan sentiment. They are holding signs of of sorts.
0: Indeed. It's kind of like getting in a time machine and, and flashing back, right? Reagan hasn't been president since 1988, and he passed um, away over a decade ago.
2: Yeah.
0: But uh, a lot of those auto workers look at the the downfall of unions is beginning during the, the Reagan era, and he was also known, for instance, for taking a hard line against public employee unions. One of the most famous things he did uh, that was anti-union was fire uh, a whole bunch of air traffic controllers who dared to go on strike, and although that was just about public employee unions who worked for the government, uh, it really sort of seemed to percolate through the entire system and was a shot to basically let private union members know that they weren't going to get much support from the government, if any support.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Professor Paul Fabrizio, some people say, judging from the strategy of the UAW this time around, which they say seems to be pretty um, aggressive than usual, uh, the, the ongoing um, movement or strike looks to be uh, more like a strategic Political campaign, then a sort of old-fashioned labor campaign. What is your view about their their observation here?
3: I I think that observation is actually a really uh-huh. accurate ac- observation. Um, go back to how the negotiations began, even before the strike. Usually, and in fact, in all the past times, the head of the UAW would shake hands with the negotiators from the auto companies. This time, the head of the UAW refused to shake hands. Now, why do we know about this? Because the UAW is publicizing this. They are sending out the message that this is not the UAW of old, that this is a brand new era. They're creating deliberately an antagonistic atmosphere and that's a message to the UAW workers. Look, it, we're going to fight. And so in an era where everything is known and shaped by uh, social media, um, I think what's going on is the UAW is playing a political campaign here, uh, is running a political campaign. Um, it, it's just a different era. The workers are all tied in with social media, too. So the UAW is simply going with what it knows, and it's hoping that it will work. Mm. So it it just we're in a different era. And so you have different negotiating strategies. What worked in the past, the UAW believes it doesn't work today. And so it's trying this other way.
2: Mm. yeah we will dive deeper into the the politics, especially the partisan politics behind this um uh strikes we are talking about here but um uh first of all now Professor uh Katsum, as we understand, the big three are really the only you know automakers that um use those uh, unionized workers in the United States. But in the meantime, geographically speaking, we understand the U.S. auto industry, particularly some of the newly emerged, uh, you know, uh, new energy-focused uh, part of the business, are actually shifting, gradually shifting, from the city of Detroit to some of the southern states where union representation has been traditionally low. Now, UAW President Shawn Feng has vowed to look at organizing half a dozen auto companies in the coming years. Do you think that's likely to, to happen?
1: I think attempts are, are not only likely but certain. Uh, it seems to me that we're at a, a peak of, of union activity that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. Uh, and that sectors that we didn 't even think would would engage in unionization are doing so, ranging from Starbucks to graduate students to a whole host of of workers who I think recognize that maybe they 've been left behind and i uh, it, it seems to me that the the United Auto Workers is looking to expand the strike and in fact has has been very strategic uh, about where they've they 've engaged in strike activity, and so there's there 's capacity for them to expand even within the realm controlled by the UAW, never mind those areas that aren't. Uh, but the big three are the big three for a reason, right? Uh, and, and so their scope and their scale is still substantial, even if you have other auto workers or uh, other automakers that aren't part of this. I mean, the big three are, hold a massive share of market sector of both the the, the size and quality of American automobiles.
2: Hmm. So, so Professor Jewett, uh, do you think this ongoing uh, strike will prompt those um, non-union workers across the whole industry to reconsider what the union might be able to deliver?
0: Well, yeah, I think they'll reconsider it. And, you know, more specifically looking again at the South, because I, I, I live in Florida, which is about as south as you can get yes. <laughs> in the United States. Um It's going to be difficult. I agree with my colleagues 100%. The the unions are going to try to expand, and they've been trying to expand into the South, and particularly with all these new auto manufacturing companies that have sprung up over the last 20 or 30 years in southern states. But the problem for them, for the unions, is that many of these southern states have laws that make it more difficult to unionize called right-to-work laws. They basically... Um, well, just to keep it simple, they just basically make it more difficult in a number of ways to unionize and two, you know, public opinion. And I think we're going to talk about that a little later in more detail. But I can just say that public opinion in the South traditionally among you know average workers has been somewhat anti-union. And so that's going to make it more difficult for the, the big three to uh, excuse me, for the unions to expand beyond the big three. And the the last point I'll make, just right here in Florida, again, even these right-to-work laws, uh, beyond that, you sometimes see many of these conservative governors and lawmakers in the South really pushing anti-union legislation. So right here in Florida, where I work, uh, the union that I belong to, they are now requiring the government pass a law saying you not only have to uh, get 40 or 50 percent of workers to join, but now we have to get 60 percent of the workers to join. And if we don't get 60 percent... Then we can't represent them as a union. So it's just uh, very difficult in the South because of either tradition or culture, public opinion, and, and the laws that are in place and being made.
2: Mm. So, in other words, you are basically suggesting that at least in the in the short term, in the near term, uh, the public opinion as well as the political environment in in, in many of these uh, Southern American states are not ready for for these laws to be either amended or uh, repealed?
0: It doesn't seem likely at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. any, anything's possible, and, and there does seem to be a shift in public opinion, even in the South among people, and, and unions seem to be getting a little more popular. So you never know. But mm-hmm. I just am sort of pointing out there are a lot of obstacles for the UAW, if they're trying to expand into the South, into many of these other auto plants that are not unionized currently, it's going to be a very, very difficult battle for them.
2: Mm, okay. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding He Beijing. So, Professor Paul Fabrizio, another focal point is really surrounding this transition to uh, electric vehicles or EVs. Now, many auto industry workers are very concerned. Mm-hmm that uh, EVs would require fewer workers to manufacture and assemble, thereby causing their job losses in the foreseeable future. But in the meantime, on the part of these um, carb companies, uh, these big three, they have uh, warned that a significantly higher labor cost under a possible new contract with the union what threaten their investments into the future? What threaten their EV investments? So, um, from a bigger picture, how big of a blow do you think the current strike we're talking about here is likely to deal to America's um, EV EV industry?
3: Well, uh, I, I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is that: Is the warning from the big three auto companies is it actually? A legitimate concern. Um, as you said, they said there will be significantly higher costs and that will threaten their EV investments. but we're living in an era under a president and a Congress that have pr- approved significant investments in the EV industry. They moved the auto industry towards electric vehicles. so therefore, Regardless of what the strike settles or however it's settled, there is still going to be this push towards the development of electric vehicles. So I when when I hear the automakers make comments like that, I wonder if they're just crying wolf. I wonder if they're just saying that just for the sake of negotiations, because I think our auto industry has just made this turn towards electric vehicles they've been encouraged incentivized by the government and that's simply the direction that we're going to so uh, i don't view the strike necessarily as something that's really going to hurt that move in that direction we are going to become much more of an electric vehicle country and it's not just here in the united states it's going on all over the world in china for example as well so we're going in a direction. This strike is, I don't think, is going to affect that direction that we're going in any way.
2: Mm. But you, you talk about, say, the policy supports, the policy incentive is now ready either from the White House or from Capitol Hill, but nobody knows for sure what's going to happen in Washington in 2024.
3: That That's correct.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But at the same time, Car makers are designing cars three, five, ten years ahead. So they I, I believe are seeing which direction we're going. And not that the fossil fuel industry is dead or anything like that. I don't want to say that. I'm here in Texas. That's the last thing anybody <laughs> wants to say here. <laughs> but in fact, we are going in an electric vehicle route. And Car manufacturers are planning what those cars are like, what they're going to be like, and that's simply the commitment that's been made. And so I, I think that the auto workers are really concerned about that, as you say, because it doesn't take as many workers to build an EV as it does a gas-powered car. Mm. But we're going in that direction, and that's that's simply the future.
2: So Professor Katzum Turning to you, on the other hand, do you think the current strike actually represents a piece of good news to corporations like Tesla? We understand uh, Tesla has already achieved some uh, profitability by, uh, by producing EVs, by using, you know, by hiring those workforce outside of the union.
1: Yeah, but it's such a fractionally small right, relative to the big three auto workers, and, and Tesla has its own issues right now. So I'm not certain I'd trust anything that comes from that particular closed shop. Uh, yeah. In all honesty, um, I mean, at the end of the day, whatever Tesla has done in terms of economies of scale, the big three auto workers will be able to do in multiplicities that Tesla can't even quite imagine right now. Uh, so I think that using sort of Tesla as the big bad wolf in the room is is not something anybody has to worry about. The other aspect is I, too, am in Texas. Uh, I'm at meetings in Austin right now, but I'm in Odessa, which is in the middle of the Permian Basin. Uh, we, we produce all that oil comes from the back of the parents of my students. Uh, and And I can just say that. We'd be naive to think that the companies that invest in fossil fuels are not also the ones putting up all of those massive turbines uh, to generate electricity. So, so I mean, it uh, oftentimes it's flip sides of the same coin. Uh, Tesla is can be used as sort of the the scaremonger for all of this, but they're they're going to be infinitesimal compared to. I mean, it's still relatively rare to see Teslas on the road compared to any other automobile. And my guess is that. As a, as a function of scale, the the major auto workers, the Chevy Volt or whatever, will become far more substantial in terms of of scale, particularly if Teslas keep exploding and setting on fire.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really interesting that on this particular panel, on this particular topic, we have two professors joining us uh, from from Texas. But back to our discussion, um, Professor Aubrey Jewett. We understand actually American lawmakers often appear at strikes of different kinds to show their solidarity with labor unions. Now, with regard to Joe Biden, um, uh, he joined a strike by casino workers in Las Vegas and another by auto workers in Kansas City when he was seeking the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. That being said, um, why do you think Biden, by by going to Michigan last week, has decided to become the first sitting American president in modern history to join an ongoing, you know, strike?
0: Well, I think that he's done it for a couple reasons. One, he has for decades said that he is very pro-union, and that certainly was part of his appeal and why he was able to beat Trump in 2020. He was able to get some of those unionized states in the Rust Belt to come back and vote for him, a Democrat, Joe Biden, rather than Trump. And so I think looking to the future, it appears that he is going to run again for for re-election. I mean, he doesn't have any serious opposition in the Democratic Party. And so he knows Trump, it appears, will be the Republican candidate at this point. And so Biden is really trying to um, publicly make a statement that he is the most pro-union candidate in this upcoming race, because Trump certainly has done his best to try to attract some of those UAW workers and was fairly successful in 2016 and just not quite as successful in 2020. So bottom line is, I think Biden's already got a. He's looking ahead to 2024, and he's looking ahead to running against Donald Trump, and he's saying, okay, what worked last time in 2020? How did I win? And one of the reasons I was able to win was I got a lot of union workers to come back and vote Democratic instead of voting for Donald Trump.
2: Mm. So, Professor Fabrizio, we still have about like one minute before we need to take a short break here, but in your observation briefly, how much does a union support matter to Biden's reelection?
3: election uh, Union support is incredibly important to uh, President Biden. Um, he, as as uh, Professor Jewett said, uh, he's uh, pro-union. He's always called himself Union Joe. So this is part of his identity. And so he needs all the union support he can get. Uh, Republican party has been anti-union in the past, and Joe Biden wants to remind union workers of that past as they go into this election.
2: Mm. Thank you very much. Let's take a short break here, and coming back, our discussion will continue. We're speaking with Professor Paul Fabrizio, joining us from McMurray University, Professor Derek Katzen with the University of Texas of the Permian Basin, as well as Dr. Aubrey Jewett, joining us from central florida we'll be back after a short break you are listening to world today i'm in beijing today we are talking about what's really at stake when we talk about the ongoing uaw strike in the united states and joining our panel Professor Paul Fabrizio, Professor of Political Science with McMurray University, Darry Katzen, Professor of History with the University of Texas of the Permian Basin, as well as Dr. Aubrey Jewett, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Central Florida. So, Professor Katzen, Back to you. Now, earlier we were talking about President Biden uh, visiting Michigan sometime last week and showing support, showing solidarity, standing with these uh, auto workers in this particular movement. Now, do you think Biden is aware that actually supporting them or supporting this movement might be actually in conflict with some of his other political agendas like selling Bidenomics to voters because obviously the the economic impact the, the negative economic impact from this uh, strike is very clear as well as say he's a clean energy agenda
1: I don't I don't think so I mean okay. look Biden's not naive he doesn't think that suddenly the internal combustion engine is going to disappear just because you embrace the concept of electric vehicles. Uh, and, and furthermore, I, th- I think he understands that there's an ele- uh, an element of short term pain for longer term gain for workers. Uh, and, and standing up for workers isn't in conflict with Bidenomics. I would argue it's central to, to the concept of Bidenomics. And, and so in, in light of that, sure, obviously workers earning more money means, that corporations don't, but I don't think that's where Biden's bread is buttered anyway. So I I don't think there's a conflict whatsoever. And as far as the clean energy, that's always been in a little bit of conflict. Right, that that the idea of electric vehicles and the idea of the internal combustion engine kind of going at loggerheads with one another and I think he realizes that for now it certainly isn't a zero-sum game and if we move towards electric vehicles sort of wholesale, that's a generational shift and probably not just one generation. So I don't see them as being in conflict with one another any more than there are any other conflicts when it comes to supporting workers versus supporting capital. Uh, And if Biden's going to reveal himself to be on the side of workers, I I suspect that's a, a pretty savvy political ploy.
2: Mm, Okay, so uh, Professor Aubrey Jewett, in your observation, why do you think the UAW is still withholding its endorsement of President Biden, despite Biden's show of support for auto workers, despite his trip to Michigan?
0: Well, I think it's a strategic move. Ultimately, I'm almost 100% sure that they will endorse Joe Biden for for re-election, but by withholding it, they will continue to really attract a lot of attention from Biden, but not only Biden, but they'll also attract a lot of attention from Republicans, like presumably Donald Trump. And so I think their goal is to try to get both parties and both party candidates to start talking and to keep talking more about pro-union activities and how we have to do more for workers and less for the corporations. And so if they come out real early and say, "Okay, we're endorsing Biden, well, then that's kind of uh, sending a message to Trump and Republicans that, oh, you don't have to uh, even come try to get our vote because we've already made up our mind. So by sort of putting putting this off into the future for another, you know, six, eight months or however long they might decide to do it, it it keeps both parties interested in them and maybe they get concessions and change, for instance, the party platforms at the National Party Convention. So, yeah, I think it's a strategic political move on their part.
2: Mm. So, basically, here on my mind, there is a fundamental question. We understand back in 2016 or 2020 elections, in both 2016 and 2020, um, who wins, who ended up winning the uh, uh, the states like Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, these uh, so-called Rust Belt states would uh, become the president in the end. But do you think uh, this, this scenario or this pattern will reoccur next year, Professor Jewett?
0: Yeah, right now it certainly looks like we will be down to, say, six or eight competitive states that will once again decide who the next president is. You know, Florida used to be one of those states We used to be the largest competitive battleground state in presidential elections, but it looks like we are moving towards the Republican direction. So it really will be up to about a half dozen states. Pennsylvania, um, uh, Michigan are going to be two of the biggest, Wisconsin, and then some others like Nevada, uh, Arizona, Georgia. And so, yeah, the... um, The Rust Belt states, particularly Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, they are going to be crucial to selecting the next president. And we know that particularly in those states, and also in Nevada, I might add, there are a lot of union workers. And so to attract the union uh, member vote is a a key strategy for Biden and the Democrats if they want to stay in office.
2: Mm. So Professor Paul Fabrazio when President Biden tried to defuse some of the previous labor disputes, his formula, or the formula of his White House team, uh, somehow included, say, back-channel negotiations, which would impose pressures on companies and corporations to make concessions to workers, as well as uh, a bigger you know, White House-level, uh, agency-level Efforts to make it easier for those employees to organize. Now, some people say behind the scenes efforts like that nowadays have a risk of failing to win credits for President Biden, which is why he needed to go to Michigan last week. What is your thought about this?
3: Well, uh, a couple of thoughts. One is that politics today is not subtle, politics today is very much in your face. So behind the scenes negotiations really don't get the attention um, or the credit that Biden really needs. But my second point is that we are undergoing a big realignment of American voters today. And specifically we're talking about working class voters that 20 years ago used to belong to the Democratic Party No longer do. Donald Trump has successfully moved many of them over to the Republican Party. So that's why we're seeing this fight. That's why we're seeing Joe Biden go and get on the picket line. He wants it explicitly known that he is pro-union. He wants those working class voters back on his side and he doesn't want them to desert to Trump anymore. So he's got to be explicit about it, and that's why joining the picket line made perfect sense for his campaign and his re-election
2: effort. Mm. So, Professor Kansom, anything to add regarding Professor Paul Fabrizio's point?
1: Well, yeah, this isn't a 20 year trend. This is a trend going back to the so-called Reagan Democrats. This is the trend that's been going on for quite a while. So I think it reflects something completely different. And look, feel free to play this if I end up being completely wrong in a a few months and you can all laugh at me. I think Biden is going to murder Trump in this election. Trump has not gained a single vote that he didn't have in 2020, and he's lost substantial numbers of votes. We're getting these fake, terrible polls, and I don't mean that in the way Trump used to say fake polls. I mean polls that that are polling 950 people, two-thirds of whom are registered Republicans, saying that Trump's going to win by 10 percent. But other than that, we don't have any indication that (coughs) Biden isn't doing anything other than building up what I think is a fairly comfortable lead by going to a white working class who have, have been moving away from Democrats, but otherwise almost every other demogra- demographic goes to the, to the Democrats. Yes, we have the Electoral College problem, which is a, a, a real legitimate concern uh, in terms of close, making elections closer than they are. In terms of the popular vote, Republicans have won one election since, since 1988, and that was in 2004, the re-election of Bush. Biden's going to crush Trump. And I think he's aware of that. And I think reaching out to workers allows him to build that lead a little bit. I think I think Biden's not worried. I think Biden's confident. And I think he has every right to be.
2: Okay. So, Professor Jewett, would you uh, share in this observation by Professor Katzen? I, I guess one thing we can, of course, talk about is, you know, a day after Biden's visit to Michigan, Trump, Donald Trump follows suit. And over there, Trump tried to cast Biden As hostile to the auto industry and auto workers, basically, Trump pointed to Biden's, you know, EV push.
0: Yeah, well, I think Donald Trump has been very clever and successful in trying to peel away some of that union vote. And, you know, he's done it by going back to 2016 by really taking aim at the free trade agreements that had been supported by Republicans and by a lot of Democrats, particularly NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and Trump basically said, we're not going to do any more of these free trade deals. They're stupid. They hurt American workers, and instead, we are going to try to strike deals that help Americans, and it's not going to necessarily be, you know, free, but we're going to try to make things that are uh, beneficial to American workers in the future. Now, once he got in office, there's a lot of evidence that he was not particularly pro-union, to say the least, or even to put it more directly. He didn't do a lot to support unions. He appointed Supreme Court justices that made anti-union rulings. Uh, he, he appointed people to the National Labor Relations Board, which is very uh, influential in making rules for uh, workers. And they typically made rules that favored businesses. So, you know, Trump's rhetoric Has been great, and um, in terms of attracting union members, particularly in twenty sixteen, a little less successful in twenty twenty. But his actual uh, time in office suggests that he wasn't very good at it.
2: So, Professor Fabrizio, your take? I guess um, some Democratic strategists are basically suggesting that any involvement from Trump on this matter regarding the strike would only work in Biden's favor. It seems. Uh, Professor Derek Katzen concurs with this particular point. Your thoughts?
3: Um, For the most part, I agree with Professor Katzen. Um, But at the same time, I disagree with the the statement that Democratic strategists say any involvement with Trump just works in Biden's favor. I'm not quite there yet. While I think that Biden is going to win this election, um, Trump still has a tremendous hold on a segment of the American electorate, especially a working class segment of the American electorate. And in the end, it doesn't matter what his record is. What the voters seem to be responding to is what he says. And. You know, uh, he's he's in a position like no other politician. People pay attention to his emotions, his anger, and they feed off that. So when he goes and speaks in Detroit and he says he's speaking to uh, union workers, and in fact, most of them weren't, what matters to his audience, his base, is that he's speaking to union workers just because he says so. And so that, I think, is what's going to be a big part of this election. Can he continue to have his hold on his voters? And will Biden be able to get out his voters Mm -hmm. to balance and counterbalance uh, Donald Trump's voters? And that's really what I think the election is going to be about. Everybody knows who the two uh, people are, the two politicians. They know what they say and it's just going to be who can get out their votes and Donald Trump is doing everything he can to start to bring out his voters uh for next year.
2: Mm. Okay. So Professor Fabrizio, by the way, in your in your observation, if you take a look at Donald Trump's four year in the White House from 2017 to 2020, uh do you think he can be um depicted as a pro worker president?
3: Um, I think Donald Trump can depict himself any way he wants to, regardless (laughs) of the reality. I mean, that's what we have to deal with. He's got an audience that really doesn't care about so much of what he actually does. They care about his emotions. They care about his anger at certain things. And if he's angry at the same things that voters are angry about, that's what matters. So while, you know, Professor Jewett said he was not pro-union in most of his work, I totally agree with that. He was not pro-union, but there's enough that Donald Trump can say that he talked about, he tried to get, he did things that he can depict himself as pro-union and his voters will believe him. So it's really not a fact-based campaign that Donald Trump would run.
2: Mm. Okay. So, Professor Derek Katzen, um let's talk about one person. His name is Steve Ratna. Uh, basically, he is the person who led the Obama administration's effort to uh, to restructure the auto industry in a pretty successful manner. Uh, in in retrospect, uh, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. And he has recently actually criticized Mr. Biden's decision to go to a picket line as, quote-unquote, outrageous. He says that the tradition of the U.S. president is actually to stay neutral in these things. Uh, What is your thought about his point here? Do you think he has a point here?
1: No. No. I mean, who cares what Steve Ratner thinks? He's a CEO investment guy who, I mean, you know, he's keeping himself relevant here by taking the side of the people who are his paymasters. Who cares what Steve Ratner says? Dear God, Uh, you know, every so often when there's a carnival barker, I suppose you're going to run into clowns. And this is a good example of that. Who cares? Right. And the idea that the, the president usually stays neutral on these things. Gosh, let me introduce you to Franklin Roosevelt. Right. Like this idea that presidents are somehow neutral in these kinds of things. Knock it off. You know, that, that that's absurd. It, it's it's absurd and it's silliness. And I'm not surprised that this guy is, is taking the side that he did because he had his moment of glory in the Obama administration and a, and a catastrophic moment for the auto industry. But I mean, Steve Ratner's opinion and $5 will get you a cup at a unionized Starbucks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, Professor Katzen, uh, for those of the audience who are not familiar with what Franklin Losewell did in sure. history, can you give us a brief introduction?
1: Yeah, so as part of the New Deal and, and and bringing about the coalition of workers, he supported collective bargaining for workers. He supported it not only when it was stricken down by the Supreme Court as part of larger legislation, but then he went and and opened it up uh, to ensure the right to, to be part of unions and to ensure collective bargaining. So he was a, a, an extremely supportive advocate of labor unions, which made labor a central part of the Democratic so-called New Deal coalition for the bulk of the 20th century. Uh, and so the only reason that Democratic presidents in particular didn't jump on picket lines is because they didn't need to. Because they were seen as the party of, of labor. So, I mean, all Biden is doing is trying to bring about these reminders again as as being supportive of labor unions. But I mean, Steve Ratner not
0: understanding that doesn't surprise me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Professor <laughs> Jewett, your thought?
0: Oh, I, I agree with my colleague i don't think presidents have ever been neutral when it comes to big large labor disputes you know occasionally maybe they they might sort of pretend that they don't have a side but for the most part particularly in the last again 30 40 years i mean republican presidents have been more pro-business and uh, the democratic presidents have been more pro-labor and that's just kind of the way it's been And, you know, just one other thing on, you know, Donald Trump and his appeal to union workers, I I agree again with most all the things my colleagues have said, but I think a a lot of times it also goes beyond the um, work issues like pay and benefits and and that sort of thing, because a lot of these union members are culturally conservative, meaning, for instance, that they want to get tough on crime and they're not for gay rights uh, they're for the death penalty and, and they're against abortion And this kind of thing And so Trump, I think, in many instances He's able to get some of these union members Not just because he says the, the the right things about supporting unions But because he's also The culturally conservative candidate And traditionally there's been a lot of union members That are attracted to that as well And even though Maybe they're voting against their own economic interests They like Trump for some other reasons
2: Hmm Okay, so shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about the bigger picture, go beyond, say, partisan politics, uh, this uh, Biden versus Trump race. Now, Professor Paul Fabrizio, uh, as we understand, Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations has actually kept tracking strikes of all sizes in America. And the data compiled by this institution is showing to us that there have been over 270 work stoppages in the United States so far this year, involving more than 320,000 workers. Uh, That's over 10 times the number of workers who struck back in 2021, two years ago. And in the meantime, public support for labor unions is actually reaching its highest level since the year 1965, with over two-thirds of the Americans supporting them. How would you make of this particular phenomenon?
3: Um, you know, my, my first thought is we here in the United States, as well as all over the world, have been through a rough time recently with uh, the pandemic And you go before that, and there was the Great Recession. So it's been a difficult time for an awful lot of people. And so I think the balance most people see has shifted towards the bosses, not the workers. So I think there's a natural reaction to it. We need to right the ship by supporting union efforts. So we're seeing greater support for unions as you said since 1965. Um so I think one one thing is that's just a perfectly natural reaction to what we've been through. But the second thing is that and Professor Jewett talked about this before. Um I don't see really great movement towards joining unions. Mm-hmm. So while there's support for unions, I haven't seen great support for joining them Mm. and especially here in the south it's not you know as professor jewett said i mean it's it's not our culture to join those kind of unions um it Mm. because of various reasons including right to work laws and all that stuff people just don't join them they they may say they'd like to but when push comes to shove we found that people really aren't and so while there's talk about supportive unions, I haven't seen the resulting switch towards everybody saying we've got to join a union. Mm. So, you know, it, it's this idea out there. But, you know, what's the practical reality of it? Um, other than a lot of strikes, I don't see greater union straight today than there was 15 years ago.
2: Mm. Okay. So Professor Catsum, uh Professor Paul Fabrizio talked about say in the South of America, uh there it's not people's culture to join unions. Um but I mean I, I mean a, a counter point or a counter argument is that sometimes cultural patterns or people's mindsets can be uh evolved or changed with the changing social and economic Norms, Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot going on with it where you can be pro-worker without necessarily joining a union. And I think union membership, I you know, it's no secret that it's down uh, extensively from from the peak in the, the mid-1940s. Uh, but I think that there's a lot going on sort of that is pro-worker in terms of a lot of the rhetoric that people embrace and a lot of the ideas that people have. And I, I'll be curious if the, you know... Uh, Obviously, Hollywood is probably the worst place to look to for real America, but but you see strikes going on in Hollywood being resolved in favor of what appears to be in favor of the writers. You see Mm. uh, that kind of thing becoming more and more visible and more and more successful. And you wonder if it won't lead to a rise in the kind of actions union or not that are more supportive of the the broad based coalitions of workers of whom there are a lot more than there are CEOs or, or, or you know, puppets like Steve Ratner or whatever. So, so <laughs> I mean, my guess is that if you're looking for numbers that you're going to get pro worker sentiment and in states like Texas, that might manifest itself in very different ways from state like states like Michigan. But I, I, I think that the, the sentiment being out there is can be an important leader in, in, in the way that, that, things play out as well. Furthermore, unions would argue that they have successfully raised the tide for all boats, whether or not it's for union members per se, that almost all the things that we get as workers uh, are the result of of sacrifices by labor unions.
2: Mm -hmm. So in particular, uh, Professor Jewett, According to this DC-based think tank Economic Policy Institute, the percentage of national workers represented by unions is about 10% uh, in the U.S. today. That's down from a peak of more than 33% back in 1945. That's right after the end of the Second World War. So what do you think have led to this decline over the years and decades?
0: Well, I think it's been several factors. One of the biggest was the rise of global competition coming out of World War II. The American economy was really the largest left standing and was not terribly affected by World War II. When I say effect, it was affected, but it wasn't destroyed by World War II. And so that was sort of the peak of American uh, e- economic might. But over the last 50, 60 years, of course, many other nations in Europe, Asia, China, Japan, you know, have risen and have become competitive. And that has put a lot of pressure on wages. And so when unions would fight for higher wages, the companies would say, well, if we pay you more, we can't compete with our international competitors or the jobs will just go overseas or we'll even open up uh, manufacturing plants outside of the United States, like down in Mexico or something like that. So a lot of it has been global competition. I think some of it has been the change from a manufacturing economy to a service-based economy, meaning the kinds of jobs that traditionally were easily unionized were manufacturing jobs that were all occurring in one place, whereas now we have all these service industries like fast food restaurants and that sort of thing. Mm. Many of them are franchised. And so rather than... Rather than being able to unionize, you know, tens of thousands of workers at one at one crack or one location, you have to go through each of these little uh, uniquely owned McDonald's franchises or uh, Starbucks franchises or what have you in order to uh, get these workers unionized, and that takes a lot of work. And then some of it has been some the anti union laws and policies that we talked about already, and some of it has been also public opinion. Was very strongly uh, in favor of unions back in the 40s and 50s, but through the 80s and 90s, it really public opinion really turned around, and may- maybe it's turning again to become more supportive now. But those are some of the reasons why we've seen such a decline in uh, union membership, at least public union, mem- excuse me, private union membership. Public service sector, like uh, government employees, like myself, we ha- have still seen some growth in union membership.
2: Mm, very interesting observation. And yeah, I guess, um, like Professor Paul Fabrizio suggested earlier, whether there is a real actual resurgence in union representation in the United States, uh, it remains to be seen. In many cases, it's simply public opinion are talking about this not necessarily joining labor union. So thank you very much to our panelists we have been speaking with Professor Paul Fabrizio, Professor Derek Katzum, as well as Professor Alvary Jewett. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding in Beijing thank you so much for listening. Bye for now